Well, hello and welcome to FUDS on Blockchain, your premier source for in-depth discussion on the latest innovations in peer-to-peer distributed ledgers. Today we'll be discussing the integration of blockchain solutions into pharmaceutical supply chains. I'm Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Satoshi Nakamoto. Hi! Hi, I think I've got my recording days mixed up again, haven't I? This is, this is FUDS on Film and you're Craig Eastman, right? Aye. So I guess that makes me... Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've long held that suspicion. <laughs> so, uh, no, um, as always, we're here to talk about some films. Oh, Just a few to get through, so why not start off with The Phantom Thread? Mm-hmm. Phantom Thread, Scott, the latest from Paul Thomas Anderson, in which Daniel Day-Lewis plays the revered and obsessive dressmaker Reynolds Woodcock operating out of London in the 50s. Uh, We are given the impression that many women may have come and gone in Woodcock's life, unable to compete for attention against his obsessive pursuit of dressmaking perfection. The only female constant in Reynolds' life, aside from his ever-present workforce of dedicated seamstresses, is his sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville with whom he has a symbiotic personal and professional relationship and who acts as her brother's gatekeeper to many interferences on either side of that fence. On a brief convalescent sojourn to the country following a particularly intense period at work, Reynolds encounters Alma, Vicky Creeps, a hotel waitress whose faint air of clumsiness and impulsive nature, while the absolute antithesis of his own, proves an irresistible draw to Reynolds. Opposites do indeed attract, and in this instance, Alma impulsively follows Reynolds home to London, slowly becoming assimilated into the ways of the House of Woodcock, first as a muse, latterly as a lover. At first, Alma's presence proves a source of mild friction between Reynolds and Cyril, but as the sister gradually comes to profess some fondness for the girl she otherwise sees as an interloper, so Reynolds' affection seems to fade, and Alma finds an unexpected way to ensure the man to whom she professes her love has no choice but to acknowledge the necessity of her continued presence. (laughs) A Daniel Day-Lewis movie is always an event, the actor having attained not so much A-list status as a near-mythological standing among both (laughs) his peers and the viewing public. That he announced Phantom Thread would be his swan song ahead of acting retirement then placed even more weight against the analysis of what we must assume to be his final screen appearance. Day-Lewis's proclivity for inhabiting his characters in that archly method way is often perceived as ultimately pretentious, and I personally find a good deal of stock in that assessment. Fortunately, in the actor's favour, I have always found these performances, the result of so much squandered intensity, supremely entertaining. (laughs) Uh, Consider Butcher Bill, the absolute highlight of Scorsese's otherwise (laughs) underwhelming gangs of New York, or There Will Be Blood's cartoonishly unhinged Daniel Plainview, the portrait with which Woodcock perhaps shares most in common, albeit with volume somewhat reduced. (laughs) Much as with Plainview, Woodcock is a character consumed not so much with self as a selfish pursuit of a very clear goal, in this case, the creation of the perfect dress. All else is a distraction, to the point where even an audience might also consider themselves such, and I can easily imagine a good many viewers fearing, much as I did, that the initial hump might be a little too much of an investment. Ultimately, however, and very much in spite of myself, I found that I came to quite grudgingly appreciate Reynolds and his ways of working, and, while not quite sympathising totally with the drive that consumes him, I actually quite liked the guy. Day-Lewis's mannered inhabitation slowly ebbs from alienating to captivating over the course of the movie, and while it's difficult to say I entirely understand the man, I did increasingly become endeared to him and his eccentricities. This is not to say Phantom Thread is flawless. As with any other movie bejeweled with Day-Lewis's performance, this is absolutely a movie about Day-Lewis's performance, Mm. often to the detriment of a great many other things. For a movie about a character so obsessed with the craft of dressmaking, we learn so very little, if anything, about the 
the detail and technicality of the trade. And this is disappointing because the one scene where any attention is focused, in this instance a client being measured, proves absolutely mesmerising in its way. So too we can easily criticise Phantom Thread for paying its many strong and profoundly talented female cast relatively short shrift. While Vicky Crepe's Alma has given a fair deal, I desperately wanted to see more of Leslie Manville and explore the relationship between Cyril and Reynolds. It was a pleasure to see Gina McKee, who, by the way, has apparently not aged a day in over 20 years, <laughs> make an early appearance as a client. However, much in keeping with Reynolds' unceasing pursuit of the next perfect mannequin upon which to hang his cloth, we never really revisit any of his previous customers. This is definitely a film written by a man, about a man, who just happens to be embroiled in an otherwise female-oriented world. I would direct your attention at this point to Reynolds' initial encounter with Alma, which to my mind is a classic case of creepy older man fantasising that he easily, instantly become the object of a much younger woman's affection. The thing of it is, though, that it all works. With the exception of Reynolds' frankly absurd ultimate complicity in Alma's scheme to keep him ensnared, it all hangs together beautifully. I shall be giving Phantom Thread at least another viewing, as much of what it's trying to express seems harboured, like one of Reynolds' seam-stitched messages in nuance and hidden detail, a great deal of which, I fear, went over my head. And while this movie is not going to knock Boogie Nights off the top spot on my Paul Thomas Anderson appreciation list, it is an incredibly engaging film and one which I look forward to revisiting again. I was entirely disengaged from this film pretty much from the house, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, very quickly joining the, like, the likes of The Master. And it's a very polished film, very well made, lots of great acting performances, but it just bounced off me. I find I have, at the minute, very little tolerance for these sort of tortured artist kind of portrayals, which is really just an excuse for them to be dicks, which is generally what, they, what he is in most of this film. Um, he's just a bit of an asshole. <laughs> and it was very difficult to actually warrant them, and I completely zoned out by the end of it again. What I, are you saying, Scott? Are you some type of secret agent? <laughs> Do you have a gun? Where's your gun? Show me your gun. I don't have a gun. <laughs> Show me your gun. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I now have to admit that I am actually middle class. I still like to think of a working class sensibility, and as soon as posh people come on and start trying to be, oh, look at my tortured life, it's just, nope, checked out. I think by torture you mean privileged. Get, yes, get get all this doubt and Abbey pish away from me. So that that's kind of what I got lumped in uh, with me. And I'd, I'd, halfway through the film, I just really stopped paying a lot of attention to it, to the point where uh, I'd actually missed some of the, the detail that makes it a slightly more interesting final act. Um, <laughs> the, the sort of mushroom-related shenanigans can't be right entirely. So I, I may give this another go. I didn't find it as... Well, I suppose I cared about it more than The Master, which is a previous P.T. Anderson low mm. point for me, which, again, is that's also a very well-made film I just did not care about. I said at some point, I think, that I'd go back and give that another go just because I mean, it is a P.T. Anderson film. Mm-hmm. He's, des- he's deserved a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, and I'll do the same with Phantom Fred, no doubt. But, yeah, I, I just didn't get any joy from it at all, which is a bit of a shame, a bit of a disappointment. Um, oh, that is. I yeah. was really engaged with it, ultimately, but I can, I can understand um, uh, a number of reasons uh, why... I, you know, uh, one would become disengaged by it if, well, to become disengaged um, mm. assumes that one was engaged to begin with. But actually, I can understand um, many reasons why. Um, I mean, ostensibly, I suppose Day Lewis's performance in general, because that is what it's about, yes. would would be uh, a, a repellent force. But uh, I, I, I can't point my finger at a, you know uh, at a scene and say this is the point at which I became engaged by the fella. But uh, yeah. I, I became quite endeared to him. And it's odd because, I mean, Plainview is often a monster as well, and um, mm. there will be blood. 
and but I guess he's more upfront about it. I guess I'm not quite sure. It's, it's the the kind of layer of you know, politeness that maybe gave put, set me more on edge with this one. I just just didn't like the character and couldn't warm to him at all as I it went on. I suppose with Plainview, there's not there is none of that middle class pretense. Uh, maybe maybe that's the thing which most uh, rubbed mm. you up the wrong way, Scott. I don't I don't know. Uh, whereas Hopefully. yes, play, Plainview wears his shittiness very much on his sleeve. Yes, um, <laughs> and there is there is no. There is no class consideration there, um, no uh, no insinuation of uh, a tortured artist, uh, just a really terrible, terrible man who happens to be incredibly <laughs> compelling in shittiness. But yes, I don't imagine Phantom Thread is for everyone, and I least of all expected myself to be engaged by a film set in 50s London about an obsessive uh, fashionista uh, and dressmaker <laughs> that would be the antithesis of what I would normally like to sit down and watch. But yes, I decided to bite down on it because it's Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> and uh, yeah, ultimately, I, I, I really enjoyed it. So oh, that's interesting. Yes. Good for you, though. Um, let's say, I, yes, good for it, me. It, it is well made enough that, I mean, if if you've liked any of P.T. Anderson's previous films, and if you haven't, what sort of monster are you? Then, yeah, then, yeah you'll find something of interest probably in the Phantom Thread. It's not for me, but I'm sure it's for an awful lot of other people. Would you, <laughs> would you say you found it to be so-so? <laughs> mm. I'm disappointed in myself at that one. Sorry. <laughs> Next. Yeah, quick look at Molly's game then. Go on. Jessica Chastain's Molly Bloom seemed to have her life pretty well planned out for a teenager. As demanded by her father, Larry, played by Kevin Costner, her lifelong training brings her to the edge of qualifying for the Olympic ski team, and her academic results should see her follow that up with law school. However, a freak accident sees her hopes vanquished, and she decides to take a year off to recuperate in L.A. So, uh, she was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when she meets us, and, and soon after meets property developer and all-round prick, Dean Keith, played by Jeremy Strong, who hires her as a personal assistant slash scream recipient. Things take a different path when she's asked to run Keith's regular high-stakes, mostly legal poker nights, where some of Hollywood's most powerful play, including Michael Cena's Player X, an amalgam of some rich actor pricks, but mainly Tobey Maguire, as it turns out. So it goes with Bloom learning the game and improving her hosting, making sizable tips in the process, and also learning some of the secrets of the power brokers. She gets so good at this that when an irrational Keith fires her, she steals the poker game and the players away to her plush hotel suite, doing a much better job and making much more money as a result. Uh, Her new priority is keeping Player X happy by finding a steady stream of other players for him to dominate because, again, he's a prick who acts like someone is continually pissing in his cornflakes. Eventually, that falls apart once Player X's ego gets in the way for the last time, and Molly takes the game to New York, running an even higher stakes game at the same time as she's running herself into the ground. Some seemingly minor drug-addled mistakes leads, uh, in a roundabout way, to the framing dice of this film. Her defence in a wide-ranging criminal investigation into the organised crime that sees a now-broke, asset-seized Molly hire elite fictional lawyer Charlie Jaffe, played by Idris Elbow, as defence attorney and exposition sounding board. Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut sees him working off his own adaptation of Bloom's autobiography, and it appears as though he's been paying attention to the directors he's worked with to produce a pretty solid outing. Nothing perhaps stands out as overtly awe-inspiring moments of brilliance, but I don't recall any clunking missteps either, so spatterings of applause all round. Without the flash to distract, then, it's mostly hanging on the strengths of the script and its performances, and thankfully that's more than sturdy enough to carry the film, 
Justine gives an assured interpretation of the character, although one that I took a while to warm to. I'd been thinking that she's not a tremendously sympathetic character until it dawned on me that she's not actually asking for any sympathy, just telling us what happened, and that works pretty well. Uh, Apart from one scene in the final act where she reunites with her estranged father, that I'm going to guess is an invention, mainly because it seems to have been written in largely to balance a largely emotionless retelling of the story. It's a fine scene in isolation, but it seems completely alien in its surroundings. It's definitely Jessica Chastain's show, and it's all the better for it, uh, but the supporting cast are uniformly solid too. I keep using that word, it's as good a description of the film I can think of. It's a good story, well told, and an agreeable way to spend a couple of hours. I'm not going to pretend that I was blown away by any particular aspect of it, it's very much the sum of its parts, but all those parts are pretty good, so there's no shame in that game. Recommendation? Watch it! <laughs> I won't be watching it, Scott, because as you know, Idris Elba. Is the world's most <laughs> overrated actor in my book, <laughs> and I just I just can't be bothered to watch anything he's in. I know that sounds terrible, sounds dismissive, but that's a fact of my life. Um, no, I wouldn't say that I would refuse to watch it on that basis, but it's certainly not going to be, it's certainly not going to be anywhere near the top of my list. Put it that way. Uh, mm. But I'm glad you enjoyed it, Scott. Yes, it's good to enjoy things. It is. It really is. <laughs> And it sounds like other people might enjoy it, and I'm entirely open to the possibility that I'm wrong about Idris Elba. Do you want to take a crack at all the money in the world before we... No, no, I don't, Scott. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I could read out a synopsis from IMDb. Would that do? (laughs) Would that do? So All the Money in the World, then, which is the story of um, John Paul Getty III, I want to say. His father was John Paul yes. and his grandfather was John Paul, wasn't he? I'm sure it's John Paul III. Let's, sorry, <laughs> fact check. Yes, John Paul Getty III, who at some point in 1970... It's all about the facts with me. <laughs> some point in 1973, I want to say. Am I remembering that correct? Yes, it was. <laughs> I won't give you the date, but it was 1973. Um, was was kidnapped uh, in Rome by a group of people who saw fit to demand a ransom of $17 million from his grandfather, John Paul Getty, the noted oil tycoon, and at the time, the richest man in the history of the world, uh, to whom $17 million is something he probably could have, could have farted um, <laughs> if he'd tried hard enough. However, John Paul Getty Sr., um, a man of some type of principle, yes. <laughs> for given measures of principle, refused to pay the ransom. Um, instead, setting his fixer, Marky Mark Fletcher Chase Mark Wahlberg, uh, on the case instead, much to the dismay of John Paul Getty III's mother, Michelle Williams. Scott, I don't have a great deal to say about all the money in the world, uh, a Ridley Scott joint, because like mm. much of Ridley Scott's latter output, I find it very workmanlike um, in tone and construction. And I think for most people, this film will be notable, or it certainly seems to be living in the shadow of the Kevin Spacey debacle. Yeah. And the kindest thing people have to say about the film removed from that is that it's perfectly serviceable um, and the kindest thing not removed from that that they say is what a miracle it is that Christopher Plummer was dropped in at four weeks notice before the film uh, hit cinemas to replace Kevin Spacey in the role of John Paul Getty Sr mm. um, and pulls off a quite quite captivating performance working with material not of the greatest calibre yeah. um, but raising the question as to why 
<laughs> as to <laughs> as to why um, Kevin Spacey was ever hired for the role in the first place. Something I know you took exception to on the basis of the terrible, terrible makeup <laughs> under, yes. under which Kevin Spacey was layered for the part. It is a perfectly serviceable film about an event in history that I was entirely ignorant of to begin with. Uh, it has the potential to be something very interesting in its study of John Paul Getty Sr. And initially, as the pendulum swung from sympathy to revulsion at his tactics, I think they're probably best described as. Um, I thought we were in for a fairly engrossing two hours, but I'm not really sure what the film is trying to achieve or ultimately what it says about Getty in the end, because his stance doesn't really change all that much, and Mark Wahlberg certainly does a good job of cleaning up the mess, Um, but there's not a lot more to say to it than that. No, I mean, I enjoyed it well enough for the two hours I stayed with it. Um, it's an oddly focused film in a great many ways. I mean, I was ex- you'd expect a kidnapping drama to like maybe focus on the bond between the kidnappee and the kidnapper, mm. but Stockholm Syndrome or something, but you get a little bit of that, mm-hmm. or maybe on efforts to retrieve him, and you get a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, negotiating with rich old geezer to secure the ransom? Well, maybe not, but you get that as well. But mm. uh, yeah, the, all those bits individually, I kind of I liked well enough. But mm-hmm. when you mesh them all together, it didn't really add to anything particularly brilliant. You know what I mean? It's just no. Well, none uh, of them were investigated to any depth whatsoever, and yeah. any number of those you could have all that surface. Yeah, mm. you could have picked any sort of three of those and gone a little bit deeper into them, and you would have had ultimately a much more satisfying film. And yeah. Christopher Plummer, you would never know that he he took this on at a couple of days' notice. No, he's, uh, he does very well. I was very impressed with Plummer's performance in this. And yes. It, the film, I think, ultimately knows that Getty's the most interesting character in it, and that's mm-hmm. why it was focused perhaps a bit more on him than anything else. Yeah. But I really would rather it was focused entirely on him mm-hmm. rather than <laughs> bringing any of the rest of it in there because um, it just seems like a distraction. Um, I'd really spend more time getting to know Getty's peculiar attitudes to everything, um, and I don't know if that would be enough to hold the film together, but it, yeah. it, it would seem more better than sort of splicing three random threads together without really weaving them together. There are enough hints at interesting avenues that the film, at certain points you think the film is going to take a certain tone or you know, a perception of a character is going to shift. The one mm-hmm. scene that sticks in my mind is where we suddenly cut to what appears to be the middle of a, a, a negotiation over the ransom and instead it actually turns out to be uh, an art dealer negotiating yeah. the price of a painting which Getty, I think at something like $1.7 million or something like <laughs> that, is, in, is entirely happy to squander his money on a painting that will serve him very little uh, benefit <laughs> whatsoever, whatsoever at a point at which I think the kidnappers have come down on their, and the kidnappers in fairness to them seemed, seemed entirely reasonable and willing <laughs> Willing to negotiate down the price, uh, down to like $4 million by this point, I think. And then Getty, uh, you know, immediately after um, asserting or reasserting his stance, we cut to the scene where he seems to be in negotiation with someone and we think, oh, is he going to yield? Is this going to take another turn? And no, it's it's a painting that he's willing to pay very (laughs) similar money for. Um, And it feels like at that point that the film is about to pivot and we're going to take like a deep dive into this guy and it just it just doesn't pay off it just doesn't pay off at all and it's entirely serviceable but i I don't know if this is the type of film i want to see ridley scott making to be honest i feel like i feel like a michael mann or somebody like that would have been in better service of this i just think when ridley scott tries to do this thing i don't think he stamps it with enough of his own style and authority um the technical achievement in this film are all down to the fact that 
you know, Christopher Plummer took a phone call and then four weeks <laughs> later it was edited and in cinemas having rehearsed, filmed all of his parts and uh, Spacey's material having been removed. That in itself almost makes this film worth watching because you you can't see the joints. Yeah. Uh, you would you would never really know that's happened um, apart from one instance of some dodgy colour grading which it's probably only because I was looking out for it that it, it fell out of place. Um, other than that, you would not know that had been the case and all credit to everybody involved, but I think ultimately that is how that is how the film is viewed now, and I think that is how it will be best remembered um, moving forward. Uh, it certainly won't be remembered as um, a, a fantastic example of the genre. Yes, I think you're right on that. Hmm. Yes. Oh, there we go. For a man who watched this several weeks ago and made no notes tonight, I just about scrambled through that, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the leg up. What what are we going to talk about next? Let's round things out with a look at Netflix's The Titan. Oh, uh, let's! Oh. Isn't that a Sam Worthington joint, Scott? It sure is. Oh, uh, what an actor! <laughs> uh, so, in the not that distant future of Netflix's latest sci-fi offering, the Earth is ruined, resources are depleted, and humanity is warring for the scraps. Our last hope is to get off this rock, but we don't have the technology to terraform other planets, so instead an audacious experiment to drastically alter humans instead is cooked up by Tom Wilkinson's Dr. Collingwood. He sequesters an international bunch of military peeps, including his friend Sam Burlington's Lieutenant Rick Jansen, who have in the past survived extreme situations to a military base and explains loosely what's going to happen to them. Uh, we've found the moon of Saturn, Titan, that seems to be an ideal holiday home, um, apart from the extreme cold and the nitrogen, methane atmosphere, and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> and, and the lack of Deliveroo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very little Domino's pizza coverage. Uh, so, um, as mentioned, it's time for some gene therapy to mould humans to fit Titan, conveyed here by Jansen falling sick and then swimming really fast and freaking out his wife, Taylor Schilling's Dr. Abby Jansen, who's then motivated to find out exactly what Collingwood's up to and why subjects are starting to die, or worse, kill others. The answers mm. will surprise you, at least if you were expecting something sensible. <laughs> I forget where I had heard this, so in the absence of attribution, I'll say that it's commonly held that you get one big ask for free in science fiction. So, for instance, Star Trek and many like it say that faster than light travel is feasible, and with that easy access to an infinite universe, habitable planets, existence of aliens, et al. seems reasonable. The Titan's problem may well be that it doesn't go far enough early enough. Now, I'm no expert, but it seems like if we had cause... We could put people anywhere we like in the solar system with current technology, given the time and the money and the incentive. You know, going to Titan doesn't seem like something that needs special pleading. And at least as it's first introduced to us, the gene therapy spoken of seems within current medical knowledge's event horizon, at least in the middle distant future. And that kind of lures you into thinking that the Titan is, broadly speaking, a hard sci-fi endeavour, or some sort of rough variant of what the excellent Gattaca served up a few decades ago. Uh, at least until it very abruptly is revealed not to be a hard science fiction film at all, or firm science fiction, or melted to a puddle science fiction, or even <coughs> sci. Um, by, by, by the time it's revealed that, and well, spoiler warning here, I suppose, uh, the scientific experiments reduced to selecting a random animal and splicing their genes into folks to see what happens. Cool. The, the swing from serious to seriously stupid is too abrupt to maintain a straight face. What else are you going to do on a rainy Sunday, Scott? <laughs> yes. I guess when you're invoking the spectre of the island of Dr. Moreau, it's never really a good thing, is it? Mm. Uh, right. Uh, and you have to ask, what precisely was the end goal in all of this? Uh, at the end of it all, we've spent a ridiculous amount of time, money and lives to send one big blue bastardised semi-human to float about on a distant planet by themselves. <laughs> 
how does that save the human race? <laughs> how can this nonsense be replicated when all the resources on the planet are dwindling to nothing and what on Titan was the point of it all? It's a shame, really, as I think there is a good, not stupid film in here if the last act's excesses were excised. There's token consideration given to the ethics of this sort of experimentation, balanced with the apparent vital need for the work, that to a boring old git like me would be a perfect thing to explore in final stretches. But instead you get the Blue Man Group action unspectacular that's foisted on us instead, and it's just quite, quite bad. Uh, and it's got the cast for it too, like Tom Wilkinson's always a dependable hand, and Sam Worthington also actually is on the smaller scale stuff. Um, you'd have to gloss over his awful turns and dreck like Avatar and Terminator Salvation, but if you look at some of these done more recently, like something like the um, Manhunter TV series or Netflix series, it's, it's actually quite good in some of the smaller roles, which this could have been, but uh, well, isn't. Uh, so for the first half of the film, they're doing it quite well. Worthington portrays the effects of his treatment believably enough, and Wilkinson's suitably assured, uh, but raising enough of an eyebrow as motives and methods, which all kind of works. Taylor Schilling and uh, Natalie Emanuel give decent support as well. Schilling, in particular, is quite empathetic. It's just a pity that it's all in support of such errant nonsense. In the final product, it's all very disappointing. I was quite enjoying it until I realised it was dreadful. I've been rope Another mark in the garbage column of Netflix's productions. What is it with Netflix and sci-fi endeavours at the moment? They seem to be throwing money at sci-fi projects. I mean, you can never really tell. I mean, presumably they've got the stats that show that people watch it, because that must just be tailored to the sort of crowd that Netflix attracted in the first instance. Mm. But mm. The, the ratio of hits to misses are, are, is not great at the minute. Is this better or worse than the Cloverfield Paradox, Scott? There's a question <sighs> for the ages. Well, it's less enjoyable than the Cloverfield Paradox because I found the Cloverfield Paradox to be incredibly amusing, because it's <laughs> dreadful. Uh, this this is dreadful in, in ways that are uh, unfortunately not quite so funny. <laughs> so you can't take just it. A, just in a draining way. Yes, you can't watch it quite so <laughs> with a layer, detached layer of ironic amusement. Yeah, it, it's, it's just daft. <laughs> it's, it's annoying when a film starts off relatively sensible, then just gets daft at the end of it. It's like, ah. Uh, I was, I was actually getting quite invested with it. That's probably why I'm a bit more angry with this than I'm with something like the Cloverfield Paradox, because it was laying its cards out on the table pretty early. Um, whereas the Titan at least looked like it had some potential and it squanders it quite wildly. <laughs> it takes a, just takes a sudden dog leg into Cray Cray Town. Yes. It's like, hang on, was this, is this a rejected draft of the Watchmen with these big walking around? It's very strange. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> See, you've almost sold it to me <laughs> on the promise of Sam Worthington once again playing a big blue b- <laughs> But in this instance, just floating around Titan. <laughs> what a prick. <laughs> <laughs> a big blue floaty prick. Oh, dear. Yeah, someone stop giving... I just, I'm at a point now where I just want people to stop giving Sam Worthington work. Yeah. Um, I, I know you, you are offering uh, kindness there with the recommendation of <laughs> Manhunters. But um, I realistically, although enough people have recommended that series to me, I'm probably not going to get round to it. And no. everything I've seen Sam Worthington in, <laughs> Sam Worthington has been the worst thing in it. And just enough now. Just enough now. If I was as bad at my job as Sam Worthington was as, I would not have a job anymore. <laughs> and I worry sometimes that I don't do my job to a great degree. Um, so, yeah, just stop it now. Just stop it. Yeah, that's all we've got for today folks thanks very much for your attention if you want to get in touch with us we'd be delighted 
if you do so, um, you can do so in a number of ways. You can email us, podcast at funzonefilm.com. You can get us on Twitter, that's twitter.com slash funzonefilm, or even Facebook, which is facebook.com slash funzonefilm. That's how it works. Uh, we'll be back with you pretty soon with a look at the career so far of Lynn Ramsey, the Scottish director. So we'll look forward to that at the start of the month. But until then, I have been Scott Morris and Craig has been Craig. Thank you for tolerating my preparedness level of 50%. Goodbye. Cheerio. Cheerio.